you know, the problem is we don't know what we don't know. Today is yet another chapter in we don't know what we don't know because now we've just learned that uh, Chinese scientists had the sequence two weeks earlier than the Chinese government has officially said and actually submitted a version of the sequence onto a U.S. Uh, science server. So it's, it's you know, there's been a lot of revision uh, of what we what is officially known about this. How can I help? How can I be useful in ending needless suffering? Do not be afraid of work that has no end. We have to organize a social movement. We have an opportunity to lead by example versus just talking, hot air. I think the more people in this fight, the more we grow. Eventually you could change. You know, the people are the ones that can make the change. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to Change Agents, an ironclad original presented by Montana Knife Company. Today, we are going to be digging in on a topic that has touched, I would say, everyone's life on planet Earth. We're going to be discussing the truth about the Wuhan Institute of Virology with my guest today, Catherine Ebon. Catherine is an award-winning investigative journalist and a Vanity Fair special correspondent specializing in the pharmaceutical industry. Catherine recently came into possession of emails between government officials concerned about the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which we will refer to in the episode as the WIV. In the months and years leading up to the COVID-19 pandemic, she recently posted an explosive investigative report in Vanity Fair titled Secret Warnings About Wuhan Research Predated the Pandemic. Today, we're going to talk to her about that report and what officials actually knew and what they may have hid. Let's get into this. I would love to dig into the article that you wrote. Um, I have a bunch of stuff in front of me, and I'm just going to kind of work my way through it so I can stay on track, and I'm going to rely on your expertise to unpack some of these things. I'm a total layman when it comes to understanding, I'll be honest, the the, the basic science involved. I mean, I, I'm not a gene editor. I don't understand any of those things, and I feel like that's okay because your average person is also um, sitting in the same place that I am. So your report started off in 2017. Uh, when a U.S. health official visited the Wuhan Institute of Virology and was allowed to tour the facility because it received U.S. funding. Could you explain why the U.S. would fund a viro virology lab in China in the first place? So there is a very strong argument to be made for international collaboration, um, that that advances science in many ways. Um, in the case of coronaviruses, uh, which was the research being funded in 2017, had a giant SARS outbreak in China in 2002-2003. Um, you know, a great number of scientists turned their attention to studying coronaviruses with the question, you know, what are possible uh, pandemic pathogens? What could cause the next pandemic? Um, the bats and the bat caves, um, where these coronaviruses could be found, many of them are in China. That is the place to study them. 
So there were a group of scientists, uh, some in the US, uh, some in China who began collaborating, going and visiting bat caves in Yunnan province, uh, province, bringing back samples, researching them, testing them at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, some of that research, uh, many scientists view as unnecessarily risky in which they were creating chimeric viruses and testing how uh, those viruses could evolve to become more infectious to humans. Some scientists say that research is just risk starting a pandemic. Um, so there is sort of debate going on about the merits of that research, the wisdom of that research, the risks involved. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that research was centralized in Wuhan, China, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was, while not next to, quite near to um, the Hunan seafood market where the pandemic first emerged. Is the argument for doing that type of research, it's better to get in front of the power curve and understand what is possible as opposed to reacting to something uh, unexpectedly? That is the argument that you're doing essentially predictive research to try to figure out what could turn into a pandemic, which would, the argument goes, give you time to develop countermeasures and vaccines. Um, but there's, there's an argument against it. And as my article revealed, there were a number of government scientists who had been sounding the alarm all along. So the argument against it is you're collaborating with an autocratic country where the scientists are not free simply to do civilian research. So there's a, um, a Chinese government doctrine called military civil fusion, which basically says, hey, civilian scientists, you need to, to hand off the fruits of your research to military scientists who can potentially weaponize that research. And hey, funding agencies in the US you don't necessarily know once you give money, once you're funding this, you're thinking that allows you to walk into the Wuhan Institute of Virology and see what's going on. But the fact of the matter is you can't necessarily know what's happening in a closed country, in a scientific setting where military scientists are working, sometimes in collaboration with civilian scientists. So. One of the things I uncovered is that there were scientists with the Department of Energy, which is a massive science and technology agency, which were sounding the alarm about these kinds of collaborations, specifically for years. I think a reasonable person would listen to what you're saying and say, "Why, if we were interested in this research and we can, we can agree that it's better to be proactive than reactive, and we could probably save more lives by doing so. Why not do the research in the United States? If we're worried about an autocratic government, if we're worried about the complications of having that military or at least government representative involved there, and I understand that there's an that is geographically where the the strains that they were studying were originating from, but I'll go to something in the article that you wrote where Canada sent Ebola to the Wuhan Institute. So it's not like it's impossible for these things to be transferred back and forth. If the concern is there, 
why not create that level of security and study these things here in the United States? Absolutely. And we do study these in the United States. So, for example, some of the uh, coronavirus research that was risky was being conducted at a secure lab at the University of North Carolina under what are called BSL-3 conditions or BSL-3 plus conditions with, you know, BSL-4 being the most secure. You know, but what happened in 2015 to onward is that these very secure laboratories, BSL-4, began being built in other parts of the world. Mm. So the the milestone in Wuhan is the creation of China's first BSL-4 laboratory, supposedly the most secure, um, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So that was seen as an opportunity by Western nations, by Canada, by the U.S., to have a collaboration, um, to collaborate with Chinese scientists um, in a way that would benefit scientists. But, you know, what happened, and that's where my article opens, US a U.S. official went in there in 2017, got the grand tour, initial grand tour of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and got some really concerning information. So she was told by Chinese scientists working there, we do not feel we have enough staff, appropriately trained staff, to safely operate this facility. So that was concerning piece of information number one. Um, then they told her, we're struggling uh, to obtain Ebola samples uh, to launch our Ebola research program. So we're thinking of reverse engineering Ebola and essentially creating it in a lab. Now, scientists can argue, is that really risky if you're doing reverse genetics in a BSL-4 lab where it's built for that? There are safeguards. You know, this is a technique that's widely used. On the other hand, those folks, the, the lady from the NIH who went to visit, uh, emailed with the, you know her supervisor back in the U.S., and they were like, you know what? That information is going to really alarm some people in the U.S. government. Let's not put it in the State Department cable, as, as the emails I obtained, um, her supervisor says, delete that comment. Uh, don't include that information. So NIH officials were well aware in 2017 that there were notable risks at this lab, but also there would be the perception of risk that could thwart a collaboration. It's an interesting value proposition. Do we tell the total truth and accept the outcome, or do we lie by omission and hopefully continue to drive forward with funding and collaboration. As a, as a person, my personal belief is that integrity is of the utmost importance. And if it was me making that decision, which I am nowhere near qualified or educated to do so, but had they called me up on my cell phone and said, hey, what should we do here? My answer would have been tell the truth because things that might alarm people 
or things that scare us, you know, that's a natural reaction from the human body that maybe we should pay attention to these things. You know, you mentioned the, uh, the capability of the facility in Wuhan. A tool is only as important, or I shouldn't say important, it's only as effective as the hand that wields it. So having a level four facility is an amazing thing. Not having the staff to be able to operate it effectively and, and having that risk ratio start to rise more vertically, um, those are two very distinct problems. I don't care how great your facility is if nobody knows how to use it. There's a reason we don't give uh, the keys to Lamborghinis to 16-year-olds that just get their driver's license. It would be an irresponsible move. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned those two things. You actually you covered the next two bullet points. Um, do you let, let me just add one please. thing, Andy, which is, you know, at that moment, the NIH is choosing to shield a collaboration that it thinks is very important for science. So that is, from what I can tell, the motivation. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, as the former uh, commander of U.S. AMRID told me, um, not to share that information with other government officials is irresponsible. Um, maybe the truth falls somewhere in between, but those were the issues at play at that moment. Well, you know, we have the good fortune to be able to look back on history and, of course, make much more educated, at least, or at least have more educated thoughts. And I would like to think that most people don't operate maliciously. So I can imagine that that person with the information at that time, not knowing that a pandemic was a few years ahead, probably thought they were making the right decision. But looking back now with what we know came from that, I'm just curious your personal thoughts. Do you think that that was a negligent decision by the officials at the NIAID? Um, I think the way I would put it is, is this, which is the NIH had its own concerns about what was going on in that laboratory. Um, fast forward to um, the start of the pandemic. And of course, now we know because of reporting, because of FOIA, because of research done by uh, others, uh, that those concerns were quite strong. I mean, there were, you know, there was an, a conference call in on February 1st, 2020, right at the start of the pandemic with real consideration given to the question of whether COVID-19 had originated from the laboratory. You know, part of the issue that was being weighed then was the knowledge that there was risky research being done at the WIV in inappropriately low biocontainment levels. So BSL-2, you know, th there was an acknowledgement that it was like the Wild West there. It was one of the, you know, statements that was made early on. Um, so, you know, connecting the dots up, yeah, would it have been important, I think, for um, concerns to be disclosed all the way along? Absolutely. Do you know if um, I know that the funding for the WIV, I'm going to use your term because I like that. That's way quicker than saying Wuhan Institute of Virology. I know that the funding has been cut for a minimum of 10 years at this point. But this is, again, yeah. post-pandemic. Do you know if there was any communication or conversation leading up to that decision when people seem to at least be able to acknowledge there might be some problems here of pulling that funding before that? Because it certainly does seem like it's a, a retroactive or a, 
a post-mortem decision? I'm just curious if there was discussion leading up to the pandemic or during. Um, and when you say discussion, discussion between whom? I, I actually don't know how the purse strings, I'm, my understanding is, is that the NIH has a broad and vast umbrella that they, not all the research is done by the United States government. I don't think the government should be big enough to do all that for clarity. Um, so there are grants and different funding mechanisms, and some of the money was obviously making its way to the WIV. And so uh, the question being, knowing that there was potential concerns about the staffing and the conditions that things like this were being worked on. I'm just curious whether or not anybody raised their hand and said, maybe we shouldn't actually be funding this facility that we have concerns about. Well, that is a really good question. I mean, the the warnings um, that I was able to extricate uh, were really related to the um, alarm about um, uh, genetic engineering research um, and what and the potential applications of that, what that could lead to, um, but also concern about what's called dual use research of concern. The idea that, hey, you give um, scientists in an autocratic country who are not free uh, to just follow the science necessarily. You're giving them techniques, you're giving them samples. You don't know what's happening to those, right? You don't know what's happening behind the curtain as it were. Um, so those were the warnings and and I think they were specific related to uh, the coronavirus research because the question was, um, if you're doing risky gain of function research and you're basically uh, altering pathogens so that they could potentially better infect humans, who's doing what with that research that you can't necessarily see? So, you know, along the way, as NIH officials were monitoring the science being done under this grant and the grantee, which is in this case, EcoHealth Alliance, uh, which is a US science entity, uh, they were submitting annual reports, which they have to do, and there were moments in which NIH officials said, um, wait a second, uh, we have some concerns about this research, but you know, the grantee was able to come back and say, well, this is why it's okay. Um, so it all sort of looked fine until it didn't, Yeah. you know? What is the, another term that I've heard people use often is gain of function research. What is the difference between the dual purpose research and gain of function research? That That's a really good question. So dual use research of concern could be any kind of scientific research that could be repurposed okay. for military use. Um, any sort of civilian research, which maybe depends on techniques that have a darker application, right? Um, and among the type of research, gain-of-function research would be an example where, hey, you know, if you are um, creating a chimeric virus that is better able to infect human cells, uh, how do you know whether that research isn't going to be misappropriated for military use? Is it a fair statement to say that the WIV and some of the research that they were doing there would be considered gain-of-function research? 
Oh, absolutely. I think that at this point is undeniable. Um, I mean, nobody who knows the details would really deny that. Um, you know, the, 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 one of the debates comes from how much do we know about what happened to that research? So, for example, um, the uh, EcoHealth Alliance, which is this science entity, which is based in New York, had a collaboration with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They actually proposed uh, in 2018 to DARPA, which is a Defense Department entity, science agency, um, they proposed to pursue research that would insert furin cleavage sites into chimeric coronaviruses. Um, some people have called that, hey, a blueprint for SARS-CoV-2. That's actually what the SARS-CoV-2 sequence looks like. On the other hand, DARPA assessed that, that there were risks to this uh, proposal. They didn't fund it. So you could say, well, the research was never funded. Um, okay, so it never happened. Well, do we know that? I was going to say, wouldn't the better, more accurate statement be the research was not funded by the U.S.? I mean, who's That's to say, right. who's to say that? I mean, I don't know about anybody who's ever gone out to get a car loan. If the first car company says, "Hey, you don't meet our lending criteria," that's okay. There's a couple more here on the docket. You might pay a little higher of an interest rate. Absolutely. So you know, the problem is we don't know what we don't know. Today is yet another chapter, and we don't know what we don't know because now we've just learned that uh, Chinese scientists had the sequence two weeks earlier than the Chinese government has officially said and actually submitted a version of the sequence onto a U.S. Uh, science server. So it's, it's you know, there's been a lot of revision uh, of what we what is officially known about this. What impact uh, would it have had had they released uh, that information two weeks prior? Would that have just been uh, an additional tool for scientists who were trying to study in real time what was going on, uh, perhaps a... Uh, uh, a quicker velocity towards um, a vaccine? Well, there is no question that, um, I think there is no question that had the Chinese government disclosed what it knew earlier, right, that this was airborne, that it was being transmitted between people, I mean, that was information that was critical, that was withheld. Had the world gotten a... Um, uh, you know, two weeks more of a head start, it's hard to say what would have happened. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have been as uncontrollable and giant as a, a pandemic as it became. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily speak to the question of origin, except it raises the question, how can we trust yeah. what the Chinese government is telling us about what it knew when? Yeah, it would be hard to make an argument that it would have not helped. I mean, I don't think it's right. you could say, well, we held it back for two weeks because it was going to hurt something like eh, that. That doesn't really pass muster. Right. I mean, time, you know, if you're dealing with um, a, a rapidly spreading pandemic, time is of the essence. And I don't think there's a scientist on the planet that would dispute that. Ladies and gentlemen, I could not be more fired up to introduce the presenting sponsor 
for season two of Change Agents, Montana Knife Company, founded by somebody that I feel very fortunate to call a personal friend, Master Bladesmith, Josh Smith. Not only a Master Bladesmith, but the youngest Master Bladesmith and one of the most experienced in the world. Montana Knife Company blades are some of the finest that I've ever been able to get my hands on. They are the sharpest knife out of the box, and they're some of the easiest to resharpen when you dull the blade. I take them everywhere that I go. I have them in every vehicle that I own and every backpack that I ever take into the backcountry. Specifically, my favorite blade of theirs is the Speedgo. It's lightweight, but so incredibly capable. I never leave home without it. If you're familiar with Montana Knife Company, you know it is often very difficult to get one of their blades because they sell out within minutes of being released. What you should be able to find in stock are the Blackfoot 2.0, Speedgoat, or a Stonewall Skinner. And if you use the code CHANGEAGENTS10, that's going to net you 10% off of your first order. Again, my personal favorite blade is the Speedgoat. If they have them in stock right now, don't mess around. Put it in your cart and complete the checkout. Montana Knife Company, they build working knives for working people. And like I said at the beginning, I could not be more proud to collaborate with them on Change Agents Season 2. I want to go back to something else uh, in your article, and I want to bring this up because hopefully it can help people understand that not everything is tied to one political party or an individual sitting in a seat. So I'm going to quote from your uh from your story. A six-month investigation by Vanity Fair has found an almost decade-long trail of warnings issued by the Department of Energy to other government agencies, including the NIH, concerning the risk of U.S.-funded biology research and that it could be misused by overseas partners. In mid-2019, an Energy Department official went so far as to issue a specific warning to NIAID about the coronavirus research the agency was funding at the WIV. How how has this persisted through multiple presidential administrations, but it's been allowed to continue? So it's not like the warnings weren't there, but Republican, Democrat, back to Republican, and the train is still moving down the tracks. Yeah. So in 2016, so this is the end of the Obama administration, um, I discovered that the Department of Energy had submitted to government officials a um, a classified warning about um, the potential misuse of genetic engineering techniques and had uh, submitted a extensive proposal to monitor and address them. And this sparked a battle, not between Democrats and Republicans, it sparked a battle between two different kinds of government scientists, really. So the government scientists in uh, the, the Department of Energy who are monitoring classified cables and are evaluating risks, and the scientists um, affiliated with the National Institutes of Health whose goals are really different. I mean, their important goals are to promote open science, advance science, build collaborations, um, so you have one group of scientists with DOE warning about uh, dual-use research, misappropriation, um, national security risks, you know, and you have another group of scientists who are working to uh, advance genomic research throughout the world. Um, 
And and those were the, the groups that were battling one another at the end of the Obama administration. So, you know, the concerns were there then. They continued in 2017. Uh, and unfortunately, like so much in our public life, now we view this as somehow a battle between Democrats and Republicans. But that's really not how this started out. It's also it's so binary to reduce that to those two parties as well, because at the end of the day, we're talking about something and you can look back at COVID-19. It really didn't care what your political beliefs were or what side of the aisle that you sat on. You would think as a human species, we would be able to put at least a fraction of that polarity aside to make a better educated decision about humanity in general. I mean, it's just, I think, very surprising, um, but maybe understandable that um, the Biden administration has resisted calls for a 9-11 style mission to look at COVID origins. Um, you know, there are many people who have felt we just need a bipartisan uh, commission to examine the question of origin. Because now, you know, you have some people who say, well, why does it matter to figure out where it came from? But think about the policy implications. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, what do you do to prevent the next one? Well, I mean, arguably, um, you could do two things, right? You can. Um, uh, restrict the try to restrict the wildlife trade, which absolutely comes with, uh, you know, significant dangers of spread of disease. But also, you can try and regulate in some fashion um, the proliferation of risky research that we're seeing around the globe. Yeah, personally, I believe that the question of why does it matter is one of the most important questions that should be answered. I mean. At a time where trust in our government is probably at an all-time low, if you want to start the long process of regaining that trust, it's going to come through transparency and integrity. And again, we're looking at something that I don't want to see repeated, that doesn't discriminate against political beliefs and does certainly seem to attack whether it's um, uh, health portions of the population or age or the combination of those things. But if we don't study our history we're doomed to repeat it. And I, I truly think that the government, regardless of what the answers may be, needs to be as transparent as possible. We should know and should be able to talk about mistakes that we made. Let, let's, hypo hypothetically, did it originate from the with? If the answer comes back to yes, okay, how do we arrive at this place where that became possible? Did we, in fact, as the United States, have a hand in that research? I think it's clear at this point assuming that the the previous statement that it did come from the WIV, which is a hypothesis, or a, um, I'm just saying in this hypothetical, I should say, not a hypothesis. Okay, that's hypothetically that happened. Did we fund that? Yes, we potentially did. What mechanisms in place or safeguards were not in place that allowed those things to happen? Were alarms raised? And it seems like you have discovered that there were alarms raised. Why were they not paid attention to. There are so many steps that we could take to correct things going forward, but only if we can actually pull the curtain back and objectively take a look at it. 
I agree with that. And, you know, I don't really um, believe that this issue should ever have become a kind of third rail. Um, but unfortunately, it has become that. Well, it, I think it's become that. And again, personal opinion, when people start trying to restrict information or control the narrative and information becomes weaponized as opposed to aggregated, it nothing really good comes from that. <laughs> Right. I mean, so here here we are now, you know, 2023, um, Health and Human Services debars the WIV for a decade, saying we're not going to give you any more grant money because you haven't been candid with us and we don't know, you know, what you're up to there. Like you haven't provided uh, lab notebooks, you haven't provided research records, we've been asking, you've not been providing it, you know. So, I mean, it has come down, it has come to that. But on the other hand, those conditions were there to see for years prior. Yeah, we're doing it reactively now as opposed to proactively right. a decade before. And again, now we're definitely into the world of hypothetical, but you can look at these things hypothetically and maybe identify weak links and then buttress them. Um, I just wonder if we will ever actually get to that place or if it has just become too polarized and weaponized to actually have that objective conversation. I mean, you know, it's 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 sort of become, you know, the grassy knoll question of our age. Um, are we ever actually going to know what happened? I mean, maybe if the Chinese Communist Party falls or if a defector emerges from China with actual records, uh, I mean, it's hard to see the scenario by which we would know definitively, uh, you know, but in the meantime, I think that there are very important questions for um, for journalists to be asking about how this research is regulated, how the NIH um, conducted its oversight, and how the NIH is conducting its res public response now. I mean, I, I think you know, it could, you know, you can imagine a scenario in which the NIH would actually be leading the inquiry into the origin of COVID, right? I mean- That's actually what I would be, want. That is what I would want. That from is the, what you would want, yeah. <laughs> right. They are actually scientifically equipped to do that. But instead, what they're doing is fighting freedom of information requests and subpoenas, Right. And then you have this sort of drip, drip, drip of information. Now, that information does not tell us where COVID came from necessarily, but it does tell us that the NIH has not been fully transparent or in command of the information it has. Yeah. Uh, going back to your report, um, it stated in there that the deputy energy secretary alerted top Fauci advisors that the coronavirus research the U.S. was helping to fund at the WIV risked being misappropriated for military purposes. Do you think this means that the Chinese government was potentially trying to weaponize the coronavirus? I think we just don't know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, was was it doing offensive research? Um, I mean, certainly the information that the U.S. government has is that China has been interested in developing biological weapons, that it has been pursuing that kind of research. Um, 
We also know that it was pursuing uh, research into a pan-coronavirus vaccine. Um, so it was very involved in vaccine development. I think we just don't know enough to know what the research was at the WIV prior to the pandemic, right? We do not have full disclosure from the Wuhan Institute of Virology or the Chinese government as to what research was being conducted there. I think it's important to state too, and this and this goes back to my personal opinion and experience in my time in the military. I certainly don't think that China is an ally of our country. You know, they're a huge trade partner. I've done a lot of episodes though um, with people talking about issues in Mexico and fentanyl production and where the precursor chemicals are coming from. So on one hand, you know, huge trade partner. On the other hand, there is a 0% chance that they don't realize that the fentanyl precursors are going south of the border and working their way up. I don't want to paint them as a shadow in a closet um, because I actually would be shocked if the United States was not doing the exact same type of research that I just asked you about, potentially weaponizing these things from a military perspective as well. You know, the way that I try to think of this as a journalist is simply to look at, did our government, did NIH know enough about what was happening at the Wuhan Institute of Virology to fund the research? Or was it told that there were dangers? Did it ignore those dangers? Did it put in safeguards? I mean, you know, what is being done with taxpayer dollars, right? That is what a great question. Yeah. <laughs> right? What are the research priorities that are being set? And what are what is the accountability for those research priorities? Once those research priorities are embraced, what are the safeguards, right? I mean, so, you know, to try to answer those questions as an investigative journalist, you have to get very low to the ground, right? So I try to sort of, you know, this story is so complicated and challenging that you really have to break it into small increments, um, as small as possible to try to get some traction on what happened here. So I'm assuming as part of that, and, and I have it as one of my notes here, you reached out to uh, representatives of Dr. Fauci for comment on the concerns that his office received. What was the response you got? Um, uh, Dr. Fauci declined to comment for this story, um, which I think is really unfortunate. I would have very much welcomed an opportunity to hear about sort of the research priorities that he set for NIAID. Um, the, any concerns he may have had about the research and the ways that he went about um, preparing for those, um, I am sure he's got a very strong argument to make. Um, so I regret that he declined to comment. Uh, the same for um, uh, Dr. Collins, Francis Collins, who heads the NIH. Um, you know, uh, but boy, if they wanted to call me up tomorrow and provide an update, I'd love to hear it. I, I I think one of the reasons that they are hesitant to speak publicly is that they have spoken publicly so much already, and they're, I'm going to use the term narrative, but I'm not using it 
with malicious intent behind that. It has shifted and moved around. I mean, Fauci is on record as having said that the United States does not fund gain-of-function research. Um, and he said that while holding his position at the NIH. And I think at this point, there's a lot of data to support that that's not true. Now, you can take it even deeper. As the head of the NIH, are you aware of every single light item and where every dollar goes? You know, there's that aggregation of information. Um, you're not going to be able to aggregate the responsibility as the person who's heading that. But I think, I think they're probably being advised not to talk about it publicly because most of the talking they have already done has gotten them into a place where it's very tenuous. You know, the way, the way I think about this, um, Canada, France, the U.S., they all embraced um, scientific collaboration in China. Um, the governments very much embraced the development of this BSL-4 laboratory in Wuhan. They, you know, the French helped design the facility. Um, Canada provided samples to scientists at the facility. The U.S. was funding research there. So, and we trained some of their employees, right? Yeah. yeah, and we've done we've done training there. So then COVID-19 strikes and there is this question, you know, this open question that to this day has not been resolved about where the pandemic originated and how it originated. So that's not to say, yes, you know, COVID came from a laboratory accident and they're hiding something. But but it's clear to me in the response that these governments feel they have some kind of exposure, right? So yeah. there is there is squirrely behavior. There is a lack of candor and uh, a lack of being forthcoming, you know. Um, and and that that has hurt science. I think that that has uh, diminished public trust, which I think is really unfortunate. I would say it's hurt more than science. Uh, it's it's like sand slowly sliding out the bottom of an hourglass. It's everything from our public institutions to politics like we've already talked about. I, I just, you know, the what's unfortunate to me is the behavior seems to be uh, continuing and repeating itself, not when it comes to, you know, gain-of-function research or, or all of these things we've talked about, but just the behavior of our public-facing politicians and scientists. We're not learning from our mistakes. We're not embracing the transparency and integrity. We're kind of, well, this is what we've said before, so we're going to stick with it. And I don't know where that leads us, actually. Well, it leaves us not in a good place. Now, I can understand, <laughs> I can understand, you know, from their perspective, they're saying, you know, there is, there is crazy conspiracy theorists who are willing to say anything. And so if we, you know, acknowledge our own concerns about this, if we you know, if we say one little thing, it's going to be blown out of uh, proportion, um, you know, and it's this very balkanized um, kind of reaction, counter reaction that um, has unfortunately, you know, led to the moment that we are in. So, you know, on the one hand, I can understand their reluctance to engage in discussion and dialogue about this. But on the other hand, I think, you know, uh, there just has not been, they have not been forthcoming, and that's evident. 
There's a lot of things I like about the Mountain Tough program, but I think primarily what I enjoy is they focus on mental toughness in addition to just the physical toughness. Everything they do is grounded in one purpose, life transformations and being strong between the years in the mind. And there's also a community of 15,000 plus Mountain Tough athletes. So the community is strong, they're supportive, and they're gonna help keep you accountable. So you can train anywhere, you can stream anywhere, you can access guided training and on-demand workouts right from your phone, your tablet, or TV or computer, whatever you're into. And everything you need is in one spot. The Mountain Tough subscription gets you access to all the Mountain Tough programs, new programs, and bonus content. And they have programs for everyone. Those who hit the gym and heavy weights, those who like to work out at home with no gear or minimal gear, and everything in between. Mountain Tough has been the trusted training by the dedicated for years now, including U.S. military special forces and dedicated backcountry hunters. There is no excuse for you to not start today. With Mountain Tough, you can conquer your goals with the ideal program for your lifestyle and schedule. Train with equipment or just your body weight on your phone, tablet, TV, or web browser. Most importantly, they will help you train your mindset so you are always ready for anything that life throws your way. Mountain Tough subscribers get full access to world-class home and gym programs, groundbreaking mental toughness training, self-improvement, prehab and rehab, biomechanical form coaching, stretching and mobility flows, nutrition guidance, challenge workouts, and the global Mountain Tough community. Mountain Tough is offering Change Agents listeners an incredible offer. You're going to get 40% off on the all-new Mountain Tough Plus annual subscription with the code CHANGEAGENTS. Go to mtntough.com and enter the code CHANGEAGENTS to receive 40% off, a savings of about $100 on your Mountain Tough Plus annual subscription. That is mtntmiketangonovembertough.com and enter the code CHANGEAGENTS to save 40%. That is less than 50 cents per day for the best in-class physical and mental training. Good morning, everybody. As you know, Change Agents is an Ironclad original. But what you may not know is that for over a decade, Ironclad has worked with brands and individuals to create world-class films, series, podcasts, and ad campaigns. In fact, I've been working with Ironclad for the past few years. I was introduced to them on a project through the Navy SEAL Foundation. I've worked with them uh, on a variety of projects, even up here in Montana, long before they proposed the idea of change agents to me. They're the best in their field. And I say that because there are plenty of people out there looking for the best, looking for the cream of the crop, looking for the top of the triangle. And if you're looking for that, you need to look no further than Ironclad. If you ever need media by way of film, a series, podcasts, or ad campaigns, they have you covered. You can reach out today and follow them anywhere at This Is Ironclad, the ampersand, and then This Is Ironclad, or visit them online, thisisironclad.com. Again, www.thisisironclad.com. What is the Department of Energy's role in American biosecurity? It's a, it's a it is a department that even I know woefully little about. I would say most people are maybe aware that it exists, but could not tell you or write down a paragraph of what they do. Yeah, I mean, people are like, well, what does the Department <laughs> of Energy have to do with any of this? Um, the Department of Energy is a fascinating agency. I loved learning about it for this article. 
Um, it's really a science and technology agency. Um, it was born out of the Manhattan Project. So the development of the nuclear bomb. And of course, if you if you watch the movie Oppenheimer, you learn um, a lot about the, the birth of the Department of Energy. Um, but the Department of Energy, uh, in addition to overseeing and maintaining the U.S. nuclear stockpile, um, it oversees 17 national laboratories, which are really premier facilities. Lawrence Livermore is one of them in California. Um, uh, so, you know, it has some of the U.S. government's best scientists. Um, now, before 9-11, uh, the DOE had actually the mandate to oversee the nation's biosecurity. Oh, interesting. Um, and there was a reorganization after 9-11. The Department of Homeland Security was created and took over some of that mission. But the work didn't stop. And so there are a number of DOE laboratories that have continued biosecurity work. Um, and in fact, that has now ramped up again uh, since the pandemic, you know, but these are uh, these are laboratories that have an expertise, uh, probably the nation's among the nation's greatest expertise in biosecurity. I, I would hazard to guess that almost nobody and again, to include myself until you unpack that had any idea that the DOE had that level of involvement. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so the thing is, is that when it came time to analyzing the SARS-CoV-2 sequence in trying to parse the origin, um, you know, that is something that DOE scientists uh, were very involved in. Um, and that was largely unknown to the public. So I have a two-part question for you here. Just based off your experience and all of the research, and I can imagine the countless hours spent talking to people um, about this topic, your personal belief, based on your reporting, do you think that it was a lab leak or it originated at the wet lab? Or the wet market, I'm sorry, not wet lab. You know, I, I don't really hazard a guess I don't know. Um, what I do know and what my reporting has excavated is that there were very credible, non-crazy people within the U.S. government who came to believe that a laboratory accident is the most likely origin uh, of this of the pandemic. And those people also faced incredible headwinds in investigating that possibility and in expressing that possibility and in trying to investigate further. So, you know, there are, um, because, um, because elements within the US government were very invested in the collaboration with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and had pursued research that uh, potentially could have been misappropriated um, or had potentially led to a research-related accident. Um, there has been, uh, at least as these scientists have encountered it, a refusal to consider the possibility. That actually, um, that actually led directly to the second question I was going to ask you about the officials 
Do you think that they intentionally misled the public to prevent their decisions to fund the research there from undergoing additional scrutiny? And not all of them, but do you think there was a concerted effort there? Um, I know there are people who believe that and say that. I, I truly find that hard to believe. Um, they may have felt that what they were doing was in the best interests of science. Um, so I really, I can't opine on that. I don't know. Um, I think there has been a lack of candor, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how intentional that was, how willful that was, I cannot say. I could see the possibility in that as well is that they were acting in their own best interest as well as the interest of science. I could see both possibilities. I won't opine either. I'm a fan of presenting people with information and letting them decide whatever they want as opposed to telling them what to think. Uh, you know, we, ha we have a saying in investigative journalism, never assume a conspiracy when incompetence is an option. Um, Here's the problem. Our species is so galactically incompetent that it almost could explain everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, conspiracy, willful misleading, those are very strong. Um, it, it's a it's a very strong way to consider it. And from everything that I have seen, uh, you know, I believe there are other possibilities. Um uh, but, you know, uh, as I've said, there has been a lack of candor. Uh, I'm going to go back to your uh, report. I found this part fascinating. Um, and again, this kind of goes with the collaboration with the Chinese government and at what level this exists. You know, it's like an iceberg. You see 10 percent top of the water and 90 percent is underneath. So in late May 2019, a scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico was arrested after he lied about taking grant money from China's Thousands Talents program. I'm going to stop right there. They have some fantastic naming vernacular. It's They're great at just <laughs> wrapping some stuff in there. So weeks later, the DOE issued a directive prohibiting lab employees and contractors from participating in or taking money from foreign talent programs, which I didn't even know existed. According to a former DOE official, officials there had grown concerned that the Chinese government was using information drawn from U.S. labs to bolster its efforts to develop biological wep uh, weapons. Do you think there's a reason to believe that labs in the U.S. and Canada have been compromised by the Chinese government via routes like that, monetary enticement? Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt. I mean, that has been well established. There was a, uh, you know, major FBI investigation into um, the Thousand Talent programs, um, you know, that both Western scientists were cultivated, um, as well as um, scientists in the employ of the Chinese government who were able to gain access to laboratories. Now, just to be clear, I mean, that is not to say that any Chinese scientists in a U.S. government laboratory is up to no good. Yes, of course. Absolutely not. Yep. You know, I want to make that clear. But, but it's also absolutely clear that the Chinese government is, um, you know, uh, making a concerted effort to uh, siphon off intellectual property 
uh, and other information from U.S. labs. You know, so Department of Energy made a policy shift at that moment where they realized the labs were open to exploitation and they had to be protected. And so basically they said, if you are if you are a scientist on the dime of a thousand talent program and you're getting money from China, you cannot work here. How would right? that work? Can you unpack the the mechanism of like the thousand talent program or a foreign talent program? So an individual scientist is some are they directly receiving money or is it under the guise yes. of money for re- I mean in really? the case in the case of the scientist who uh had to plead guilty, yes, he was receiving actual grant money from the Chinese. And wow. he is he is duly employed at a US government laboratory. Now, obviously from a national security perspective, that is not okay. Yeah, it's leverage. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, um, you know, and uh, and those are some of the questions that are being examined in this ongoing Royal Canadian Mounted Police investigation um, uh, surrounding the Winnipeg, you know, Canada's Winnipeg lab, its BSL-4 lab, and its collaboration um, with China is whether a Chinese scientist who had been working there was essentially assisting the Chinese government in getting samples and other materials uh, sent from Winnipeg to China. That's on, um, that's ongoing right now with the RCMP? That is ongoing right now, yes. How long have they been investigating that? Uh, I would say, I think that's been going on since 2019. Hmm. You know, so there, there are... I mean, you know, the problem is if you want to pursue open science, and that is a goal of science, it's crucially important. It's vitally important. Collaborating overseas is very important. There are different samples, different flora and fauna, different approaches. Um, uh, So how do you do that while securing... um, your research techniques, right? Your your samples, your intellectual property, like those are questions that have not been answered, right? It's a it's an unresolved policy dilemma that has yet to be answered. Now, the question we're talking about today is whether that unresolved dilemma played some role in the origin of the pandemic, and we just don't know. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the narrative that we come keep coming back to. We, I don't think maybe somebody out there, I don't know, has it written down on a piece of paper and doesn't want to share it with us all. Um, and I don't know if we'll ever get to a place where there is 100% certainty. Um, final question for you today, to be respectful of your time, actually ties back into this, though. You know, the, the truth, and I'll use that in air quotes because I know everybody has their own truth, and even the definition of the word truth in this day and age is being questioned— about COVID's origins, it seems like it's been made so unclear to the American public. Do you think we'll ever be able to find a place where we can actually hold people accountable? Or are we going to live in this nebulous place where, and I think it would be unfortunate, I think accountability is essential here so we can learn from our mistakes, but if we can't agree on what actually happened and why, 
just curious if you ever think we'll get to a place where we can do something about this and where accountability can actually be applied or expected. So um, accountability is a massive challenge. Even as we speak, there has been an effort to negotiate a pandemic treaty um, uh, by the World Health Organization. And basically some of the questions are, hey, if you are a nation that detects some kind of, um, you know, illness and uh, some sort of mysterious illness, you know, what are your obligations to the rest of the world to disclose? When do you disclose it? You know, if you disclose it, are you going to be penalized for disclosing it because mm. suddenly everybody's canceling travel to your country, right? How do we negotiate all of that? Um, and of course, part of the impetus for that is the very widespread observation that China was not forthcoming. You know, China did not share immediately everything it knew, you know, that 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 the, the that COVID-19 was transmissible between humans, that it was, you know, detected earlier than they revealed. I mean, so there's been, you know, uh, a feeling that we need to have a universal agreement about how that information is shared. And it's been very, very hard uh, to negotiate, you know. So the, the question, the question of accountability, even for the next pandemic we don't know about yet, is elusive, let alone the one we all just lived through, um, you know, and we're still uh you know, getting revelations by the day. Yeah. As you were as you were answering that, I had, had a thought when you were talking about China and their disclosure. If the roles had been reversed, and let's say that um, for whatever reason, the suspicion was that the pandemic had been or uh, had originated in the United States. Do you think the United States would have acted any differently with their disclosures? Well, that is a great question. I mean, as people say, you know, China should just let us into the laboratories. We should have been able to send a team of experts into the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That's an interesting mirror to look place. into. And people are like, the U.S. would never have agreed to those conditions in a million years. So, you know, I think that that's a very fair point is like, are we demanding of China something that we would not provide ourselves? Um, I would like to believe that, you know, in a democratic civil society, uh, the U.S. would have been far more forthcoming. But look at our behavior right now. We're still not. And, you know, and the pandemic didn't originate here. So it's very hard to say. It is hard to say, and I hope that people spend some time thinking about that. They forget the, the old, you know, the five-year-old, when you put point one figure out, there's three more pointing back at you. Sometimes it's best to spend right. time looking in your own house. Um, what are you going to write about next? Uh, you know, I'll continue reporting on this if I can add value um, and continue investigating, exploring other science and medicine topics. And national security agencies, excuse me, and national security topics related to various federal agencies. Okay. I like it. Well, I cannot thank you enough for your time. I truly enjoyed the conversation. We're going to link to your Vanity Fair article, which 
give it 15 minutes, everyone. Have a read. And then just sit and think for a little bit. Um, any closing thoughts? Anything you would want to leave people with? I just think it's very important for people to understand that an answer to the question of COVID origins is one that would be immensely beneficial to mankind. Uh, and that I think it's important to be asking these questions. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope that it got you thinking. I hope that it got you thinking about questions that more people should be asking. And then the next part of that would be, who are we asking them to? And how can we hold those people accountable for transparency and integrity and to actually force them to work for those that elected them into office? You can read Catherine's full report by searching Secret Warnings and Wuhan Research Predated the Pandemic on Vanity Fair's website. Thank you again to everybody for tuning in, listening, and watching Change Agents, an ironclad original, proudly presented by Montana Knife Company. We're going to be back next week with an all-new episode, and I'll see you then. 